say amen. amen. Good to see you all here today. The word of the Lord never fails. It never returns to him never. void, but it accomplishes what he sends it to accomplish. Amen. And so today the Lord is sending his word to us, and I know that his word is going to accomplish what he sends it to accomplish. I'm very, very thankful to stand with you on this day. We are, let me say that this is an awesome house. Yeah. And this is an awesome people. This is an awesome church. God is doing awesome things here. And I am so thankful to be a part of it and to be with us. And I say that this is the most, this is, this is the best time to be a part of this house. It really is. Because we're standing right on the cusp of the next great move of the Spirit of God through this house. And I want you to, I want you to know some things. This city is called Emeryville. In 1890, Mr. Emery, the founding father of this city, declared that there would never be a church in Emeryville. This, this city was founded to be a brothel town and a gambling town. There was nothing here but gamblers and prostitutes. And Mr. Emery declared that it would continue to be so. And that this would never be, there would never be a church in the city of Emery. He, made, he spoke those words and Jesus took it personally. You don't call out Jesus and pick a fight with him. I am humbled every time I stop to think that this is not my church. I didn't die for it. This is not my vision. This is not my plan. This is not my desire. But God spoke to me, and I'll never forget the day when God spoke to me and said, Go to Emeryville and build a house for my glory. I was on my way to a recording studio in downtown Oakland at 5 o'clock in the morning in the fall of 2003, in September 2003, and I got lost and couldn't find the studio. I thought, I grew up in Oakland. I know Oakland. How can I get lost in Oakland? And I found myself coming up 40th, and the Spirit of God spoke to my heart one word, and it was like a sledgehammer blow to the chest. God said, Emeryville. And then I looked up and the sign said, welcome to Emeryville. And I pulled right in. I never made it to the studio that morning. I drove all, I drove every street of the city of Emeryville that morning and prayed over every inch of this city because God had given me a burning vision to build a house in this city. But I want you to know that before the vision was given to me, it was God's vision. The Lord showed me so clearly when we first started this church that man does not build a church. I said, Lord, if I'm going to build this church, you have to show me how to build it. And Jesus said, no, thank you. He said, I never asked a man to build a church. I said, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. However, although Jesus is the builder, he allows us to be co-builders with him. He allows us to join in the work. I remember when I was young and one of my buddies After school was over, he he was maybe eight or nine years old, his father was a carpenter. And and his father was working on our campus at at the school I went to. And he would go in the room with his father and he'd put on the same carpenter's belt that his father was wearing. And he had all of the same tools that his father had. And if his father stood and looked at a wall, he would stand and look at that wall. Now, an eight-year-old cannot build a house. The father was building the house, but the son joined in the work with the father and he was the father's co-builder. At eight years old, the son could look at that house and look at that building and say, I built that. I built it with my daddy. 
me and my daddy. I wore the belt when he wore the belt. I carried the hammer when he carried the hammer. And I knew that the Lord was calling us to be co-builders with him. Co-builders with him. And so I want you to know today that what God is doing in the city of Emeryville has really has very little to do with the will of man. But it's all about the will of God. You know, I, I ran into a pastor, and I, I've known him for a long time, but he pastored in the Oakland Hills, a city called First Co- a church called First Covenant Church. And uh, he asked me, he said, Benjamin, what are you doing these days? And I said, oh, my wife and I just planted a church in Emeryville. He said, what? I said, we just planted a church in Emeryville. Tears welled up in his eyes. He said, for the last 12 years, an old lady in our church has been crying out to God day and night. The Lord put a burden in her heart, and she's been crying out to God day and night that God would build a powerful church in the city of Emeryville. She saw the godlessness of that city, and her heart began to cry out to God, Lord, plant a powerful work in the city of Emeryville. And I got choked up at that moment because I realized that God was simply inviting me into something that he had planned, something that he had dreamed about, something that he had desired long before I ever came on the scene. That is, God had been walking the streets of this city and planning what he was going to do. And he had determined... That he would build a house for his glory in the city of Emeryville. But he's invited us to be co-builders with him. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to, first of all, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter, the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And then second of all, you can put your finger in first Chronicles chapter 22. And what I want to say to you this morning is that God has called us to be co-builders with him. But in order to be co-builders with him, there's a shift that has to happen in our thinking. There's a shift that has to happen in our minds and there's a shift that has to happen in our expectations and in our actions. God is calling us to be co-builders with him, but many of us have yet to put on the belt. Many of us have yet to pick up the hammer. We have yet to put on the tool belt and stand next to the carpenter. I, I want you to know that the great carpenter, his name is Jesus. But he's calling us to put on the belt and to stand next to him in the building of the house. But in order to do so, there's got to be a shift in our minds and in our hearts. There has to be a shift. And today God is calling us to make that shift. Isaiah 40 verse 1. Are you there? And I want to say that this this word is for the house today. This word is for the church today. And if you're not a member of this church, uh, you can become one. If you're visiting us for the first time, I'm talking to the church, but you can be a part of it. Everybody is welcome here. But even if your membership's at another church, we're we're thankful for that. We bless that. But you can be a part of the building there. You can take this word and apply it to the house that God has set you in. And if you are a believer and you, you have not committed yourself to a local church, you need to do so in order to enter into the season of what God is doing In your life and in the body of Christ. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. Are you there? It says comfort. Yes. Comfort my people says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. And cry out to her. That her warfare is ended. Cry out to her. That her warfare is ended. Now turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, David is coming to the end of his life. And he's coming to the end of his administration. 
He's coming to the end of his rule and he sees that a shift is about to happen. The rule of David is about to give way to the rule of Solomon. The administration of David is about to give way to the administration of Solomon. And and now that David sees that his rule and administration is coming to an end, his heart is set on setting up Solomon's administration, setting it up to succeed so that it cannot fail. What David has in his heart is to prepare his son Solomon to build the house of the Lord. Now, if you look at verse 5 of 1 Chronicles chapter 22... Verse 5 says, Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. David says, if we are going to build a house for the Lord, it's got to be exceedingly magnificent. We can't build no hoopty house for the Lord. We cannot half do the building of the house of the Lord. Why is David saying that? Because earlier he said, how is it that I live in a house made of cedar, but the house of the Lord is a tent? How is it that my house is bigger than God's house? How is it that I've paid more attention to building my own house than to building the house of the Lord? David says, we've got to build a house for the Lord, but it must be exceedingly magnificent. Listen, as we're stepping into this season of building, we've got to get that in our hearts and minds that the house of the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. And he says, it must be famous. It must be famous. It should be known throughout all the nations. It should be the talk of the nations. People among the nations should be saying, do you see what's happening over in Jerusalem? Do you see the house that they are building? It's exceedingly magnificent. It's famous and glorious. He said, glorious throughout all countries. David says, I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Verse 6. Then he called his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. The name Solomon is derived from the Hebrew Shalom, which means peace. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. Verse 10. He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Verse 11. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. I want you to understand the significance of this conversation that's happening here between David and Solomon. Is my microphone on? Are you sure? It doesn't sound like it's on. Okay, good. I just want to make sure we get it for the recording because this word has to go out. I want you to understand the significance of this conversation. 
the shift that's happening from David to Solomon. Understand that fathers always want their sons to be like them. And sons always want to be like their daddy. If you have a good daddy. And towards the end of a father's life, if a father is having a talk with his son, he'll say something like this. Son, I know I've made many mistakes. Don't imitate those. But I've also made some good decisions. And hopefully I've been an example to you that you can follow in my footsteps. The things that I've done well, I want you to do them, son. The things that you've seen me do, I want you to imitate those things. And I want you to teach them to your children. And I want you to pass them down. It's just like Paul said to Timothy. He said, Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to pass them on to trustworthy men who will be able to teach them to others. But David does not say that to Solomon. At the end of his administration, David sits his son Solomon down and says, Solomon, I know that you have watched me rule, but you're not going to rule the way I've ruled. I know that you have watched the way I have led, but you're not going to lead the way I've led. Your administration is the beginning of a new season in Israel. It's a new protocol and a new administration. My administration is the end of the old. Your administration is the beginning of the new, and so you cannot lead the way I've led. You cannot govern the way I've governed, and you cannot live the way I've lived. God is giving you a new administration. You need to understand the significance of this conversation. Because for generations in Israel, Israel would only follow the man who was anointed by the Spirit of God. And the man who was anointed by the Spirit of God was always discerned in the presence of battle. That is, when the Holy Ghost came, you started killing people. Follow me. Moses brings Israel out of Egypt. At that point, when he takes them to Mount Sinai and they receive the law, Israel officially becomes a nation at Mount Sinai when they receive the law. Moses leads them through the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because they were not willing to enter into warfare and fight. They saw the Canaanites and God wanted to anoint them to go to war, but they were not willing to enter into the battle. And because they weren't willing, they were not willing to receive the anointing for warfare. So they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years because they would not fight. After 40 years, God raised up Joshua and Joshua was a man of war. The anointing of the spirit came on him for battle and he led Israel in conquest and they took the promised land and were firmly established in it. From that time on, they were subject to constant attacks. I mean, enemies came. If you looked at the enemies that were coming against them, the Philistines, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, the, 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 I mean, there were all kinds of ites. Every ite you could possibly think of was coming against the children of Israel. And sure enough, they had to fight this army and fight this battle and fight this battle. But after Joshua, there was no leader. There was no Joshua after Joshua. Moses had a Joshua. Joshua didn't have a Joshua. So there was no government over the people of Israel. So what happened when they got attacked? You know what would happen? The spirit of the Lord would anoint some random person. And that person would rise up, lead Israel to battle, destroy the foe, kill everybody. And everybody said the spirit of God, he got the Holy Ghost. Samuel was the last of the judges. And the people of Israel said, we want a king. Samuel went to the Lord. The Lord said, all right, I'll choose him a king. 
So how does he choose him? He chooses this man, Saul, the son of Kish. And when Samuel meets him, he says, when you walk away, you're going to meet a company of prophets and a worship team. The worship team's going to be coming down the hill and they're going to be singing, playing the guitar. And then the prophets are going to be there. And the spirit of prophecy is coming to come on you and you're going to prophesy. Why? Israel will not follow someone who's not anointed by the power of the spirit. So that happens. Saul walks off. The anointing comes on him. He starts prophesying. Everybody says, that's step one. You got the Holy Ghost. Not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. (laughs) He was Kojic. That's right. (laughs) No. But now you got to kill some people. So sure enough, the Amalekites attack Israel. Saul, he's on the farm. Plowing with the yoke of oxen. And all of a sudden, the anointing of the Spirit of God falls on him in power. It said the Spirit of the Lord came on Saul in power, and he took his oxen and cut them up into pieces and sent the pieces in in, in mail container, sent about UPS throughout all of Israel. And he says, if you don't show up for battle with Saul, I'm going to come cut up your oxen. Man, that's a threat. He's going to cut up my oxen. I'm showing up to the war. Everybody shows up to battle. Saul leads them out against the attacking Amalekites and destroys the army. And everybody said, the spirit of God's on Saul. We're following him. God selected him as king through warfare. And the proof that the spirit of God was on him was warfare. Now, what about the shift from Saul to David? How did they know that David was anointed with the spirit of God? Because he was killing people. He was watching a sheep, first of all, and a lion attacked, and he killed the lion. And a bear attacked, and he killed the bear. Now, a 13-year-old boy should not be able to kill a lion and a bear. When the anointing of the Spirit anoints you in battle beyond your natural ability, it was a sign to Israel that you got the anointing. The Spirit of God is on you. You can lead. What happened with Goliath? There was not an anointed man in the army of Israel until David showed up with the cheese. He showed up with some cheese. Little kid. And and he hears the taunting of Goliath. The spirit of God comes on him in power. He goes out there with a slingshot and kills a, a giant that was almost 10 feet tall. Cuts off his head with his sword. And everybody says, he's got the Holy Ghost. It wasn't because he spoke in tongues. These days you get the Holy Ghost, you speak in tongues, you fall on the floor. It's a, the spirit is on him. Why? Because he's shaking like this. <laughs> the spirit was on David because he could kill people that he, nope, that he shouldn't have been able to kill. And David became the most popular thug in Israel. He would walk down the streets. Remember, he started going out into battle and he could not be defeated in battle. And they started singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Imagine this, David is walking down the street and the women start singing about how many people he has killed. Those are the songs they sing about him. That's how they knew he was anointed. When Saul saw that David was more anointed to kill than he was, he knew that the anointing was on David. What I'm saying is that, and even when David came to power, the first thing that happened was the Philistines came out against him in full force. Immediately, his reign was tested on the battlefield. He had to fight. He was a war king, a warrior king, a warring king. 
His enemies came against him from every direction, every direction. He was fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and attacking and being attacked and attacking. And if they weren't attacking him, he was attacking them. He attacked Jerusalem and put it to the sword, took the city. And then the king of Tyre sent cedars and, and built a house of cedar for David, a palace for David. Now he's established in Jerusalem and he's sending out his armies here and his armies there. He sees that there's such an administration of warfare that God's given him that his second in command was Joab, the commander of the army. If you look at David's administration, it was David, the king, Joab, the commander of the army, Abishai, the assistant commander of the army. And and it went right down the ranks of the army. There was no distinction between the state and the military. It was a military state. That was the administration of David. And at a certain point, David said, Lord, now I want to build you a house. And God said, no. Wait a minute, Lord. I live in this palace of cedar. Let me build you a house. And God said, no. Why not? Because your administration is an administration of warfare. Your job is to do battle and you cannot battle and build at the same time. Your job is to battle, David. Your job is to win all of the battles. Your job is to fight all of the wars. Your job is to make sure that there's not an enemy left behind, but you're going to have a son named Solomon, and he's going to be a man of peace. Your job is to set him up with peace, to win every battle, so that when you set your son Solomon up, there will be no more battles for him to fight, no more enemies coming against him, no more land to take. You've taken all of the land. He will be a man of peace, and he will be a man of rest. And in the midst of that peace and rest, your son Solomon is going to build me a house because, David, you can't build and battle at the same time. You have to come to a place of peace and rest if you're going to build. David, right now, you are in the administration of warfare, and yes, I want want you to go to war. And remember, when David was under the administration of warfare, the, the one time he stayed home from a battle, he fell into sin. Yeah. He had to keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. Till the day he died, he was even in his old age going out on the battlefield. There was one war where he almost got killed, but Abishai had to jump in and kill the guy who was going to kill him. And they had to take him off the field. I mean, imagine in his old age, he should have been retiring. He's out there. I'm still fighting. <laughs> I kill all of y'all. I got the anointing. That was his administration. That was his job. But now he's coming to the end of his life and he says, Solomon. A shift of administrations happening. I've won every battle that you could ever think of fighting. You don't have to fight anymore. I've. I know that you think that you're surrounded by powers and principalities, but I have already defeated them. I've triumphed over them and I've made a public spectacle of them. I know you think that people have weapons that they're forging against you, but I'm telling you no weapon forged against you will prosper. Every tongue that rises up in judgment against you, you shall refute. I know you think that you have to fight with snakes and scorpions, but I'm telling you, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. You're just going to walk towards your destiny and everything that comes against you, you're going to walk and you're not going to give any thought to it. You don't have to attack anybody and you don't have to defend yourself anybody. I've given you peace on every side. Solomon, I've made sure to fight every battle. And now I'm saying you're more than a conqueror. Why? You didn't fight. You simply walk in the victory. I'm a conqueror because I fought and won. You're more than a conqueror because you're walking in my victory even though you didn't have to fight my fight. Solomon, 
I'm moving you from the administration of warfare to the administration of building. You're no longer battling Solomon. I know that you watched me all your life and you dreamed of being a warrior, but I'm saying you're not a warrior. You're a builder, Solomon. And if, you're, if you start battling again, after I've moved you into the administration of building the house, if you start battling, the house will never get built. Because if you're battling and battling and battling in your heart, if you're fighting and fighting and fighting, nothing gets built. Solomon, the enemy was going to want to distract you and convince you that you don't have victory. The enemy's going to want to distract you and draw you back down into the valley and, and have you fighting again, fighting again, fighting again, like my father David. And I'm saying, Solomon, that that dispensation, that season, that administration has come to an end. Comfort ye, comfort ye, Solomon, comfort Jerusalem. Comfort my people. Solomon, you're going to have to comfort my people. You're going to have to speak comfortably to Jerusalem. You're going to have to cry unto her that her warfare has ended. Solomon, I'm telling you, you've got to now begin to cry unto Jerusalem and tell her that her warfare has ended. Why? Because I'm handing over to you a people that have been trained for battle for yeah. centuries. If you look at the children on the street, Solomon, they got little play swords. And if you look at them, one day, once they get to junior high, they start training for battle. They're training for battle. And you've got a whole nation full of people, young people, that are waiting for their chance to fight it out on the battlefield. Now you're going to have to shift their thinking. You're going to have to stand in front of this people and say, I know that you've been trained for warfare, but now you're going to have to beat your swords into plowshares. I'm no longer sending you out with the army to fight. Now I'm bringing you home to build the house of the Lord. Solomon. You have to shift the minds and hearts of the people so that they're no longer thinking about battling. But now they're thinking about building. And you have to tell them, and the reason they're ready for battle is because they don't think they have the victory yet, Solomon. They think there's more battles for them to fight. They think there's more victory for them to win. They're still thinking about five different battles they have to fight because they don't know that their father David already won those battles. They don't know that I already defeated every one of their foes. And so they feel a little twinge in their chest and they think, oh, the enemy's coming to kill me with a heart attack. And, and they, they feel a little bit of rejection. They, oh, I got to fight this battle of rejection. And they're, they're, they, they think a hundred different things they have to overcome and they don't realize I've already overcome it all. I've already overcome it all, Solomon. Solomon, I need you to understand that the work is going to be to shift the minds and hearts of this people and move them out of the administration of warfare and move them into the administration of the building of the house of the Lord. Solomon, you got to get a vision for building the house of the Lord and you got to give the people a vision for building the house of the Lord. Solomon, if the people don't get a a vision for building, they're going to keep fighting. And if they keep fighting, they never build anything. Why? Because you can't think about building something for the Lord when you're simply fighting for yourself. You're so busy fighting for your own peace that you can't walk in the peace of God. You're so busy fighting for your own uh, provision that you can't receive the provision of the Lord. You're so busy fighting your own battles that you don't realize that the battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. And so Solomon, you're going to need a new administration. Joab can't be your second in command. You cannot. The second in command is not going to be the army. It's going to be the priest. And so Solomon's second in command was Zadok the priest. His third in command was Nathan the prophet. But get this. His fourth in command was Benaiah the gangster. 
Do you know who Benaiah was? Benaiah was the captain of David's mighty men. Benaiah was the guy who killed a, a, a seven foot six inch Egyptian who had a spear. He attacked him with a club, snatched the spear out of his hand and ran him through with it on the battlefield. Everybody was afraid of this big old Egyptian and Benaiah attacked him and killed him with his own weapon. Benaiah was gangster. Benaiah was the guy who jumped down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Pastor Joseph just preached about him a couple of weeks ago. He jumped down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, there's a lion in that pit. I got it. Excuse me. (laughs) David said, Solomon, you're moving into an administration of building, but I'm sending Benaiah to work for you. And he is going to represent the power of my warfare. You're still going to have it at your disposal. And you'll use it here and there. But it's going to be fourth priority, not first. It is not going to be at the head of your list. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have any problems anymore. It doesn't mean that stuff isn't going to come against you anymore. It doesn't mean you're not going to feel anything anymore. It doesn't mean you're not going to have a little struggle here, there, or a little struggle there. But I'm saying that one Benaiah is enough to kill it now. You don't need the whole army. So as soon as Solomon becomes king, he writes a list of people on his knock list. He says, Benaiah, please go kill the following people. Thank you. And he leaves it to him. Solomon never goes out to war. Benaiah, let's see. Joab. uh, Joab, come here. Nah, man, what do you want? Come here, Joab. We got to talk. He goes in and grabs the ram horns of the altar. And Benaiah goes in. Solomon, he's, he's in the tabernacle. He said, kill him there. Solomon said, be it unto him according to his faith. Go kill him there. Okay. Benaiah goes into the tabernacle and cuts Joab. I mean, he still had all of the power of the Davidic warfare at his disposal. But all it took was one Benaiah. I'm saying to you, and I'm not saying you're never going to struggle, but you need to recognize that any little struggle that you have, all you need is one Benaiah in your administration to take care of it. Now you're not sending out whole armies. One person in Solomon's administration carried a sword. There needs to be one of those in every church. One Benaiah. Every ministry needs one of those guys. Well, we got two, Oscar and Albertine. <laughs> yeah, he, he carries a filero. <laughs> so, Solomon, you've got to build. Now, watch this. Now, David is unraveling the preparations that he's made. He's saying, Solomon, you got to build, but don't worry, I've made preparations. you got to build, and I know it might be overwhelming to you because you're young and inexperienced, but don't worry, I've made extensive preparations. And then David begins to tell Solomon about all of the preparations. Verse 14, indeed, I've taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord. And he says, all of this gold and silver and bronze and iron and timber and stone, he says, I've set aside all of the materials already. And secondly, look at verse 15. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance. You've got an abundance of workmen. Solomon, you can build the house because you've got an abundance of workmen. I know they all think they're warriors. But you're going to teach them that they're workmen. Did you hear that? Solomon might look out and see a whole army of warriors and say, I don't have any workmen. David says, no, 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 look again. You've got an army of workmen. You've got to teach them that they're workmen. You've got to teach them how to beat their swords into plowshares and study war no more. 
And David says, he goes on to say, you need three kinds of workmen, Solomon. You need stone cutters, you need wood cutters, and you need carpenters. Stone cutters, wood cutters, and carpenters. This morning, God is looking for the stone cutters in the house. And he's looking for the wood cutters in the house. And he's looking for the carpenters in the house. And as the stone cutters, wood cutters, and carpenters begin to take their place in this house, this house will be built. The house of the Lord in the city of Emeryville will be built. Now, what do the stone cutters do? They go to the side of the mountain and they dig until they hit rock. And then they dig out a quarry there and they begin to take rock out of the mountain. And then they shape it into stones and they come back and, and give them to the carpenters who put them in the foundation. The stones are for the foundation. The stones are for the foundation. Now, in the ancient world, whenever you built a, any type of a building, the first two stones that were hewn out of the mountain were the cornerstone and the capstone. The cornerstone was the first stone. The capstone was the last stone. You started with the first and then you went straight to the last. Everything in between was secondary. You started with the first and the last. That's why Jesus is called the cornerstone and the capstone, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And you didn't start the building till the cornerstone and the capstone were absolutely perfect. I'm telling you, Jesus is the first and the last and he's absolutely perfect. The cornerstone and the capstone had to be complete. They had to be perfect. Every other stone that they pulled out didn't have to be so perfect. They didn't, they did not smooth out all of those stones before bringing them into the house of the Lord. They brought them all rough and all, you know, I mean, they were kind of, they weren't the right size at the time when they brought them into the house of the Lord, but they said, they're stones. Let's get them into the house. We'll shape them when we get them in. You know, a lot of times you say, I want to bring my friend to church, but I need to smooth him out first and got to work off his rough edges because he might come in and offend everybody. First, first Peter chapter two, verse four says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also as living stones are being fitted together. A spiritual house. You're being fitted. You know, the cornerstone, they would slide it into its place. But you know, every other stone had to be fitted together. You say, I know it's got some rough edges, but we're going to fit it together. We're going to put this stone and put another one next to it and fit it together. It doesn't fit. Yes, it does. Keep pushing. Come on, keep working. But sparks are flying. I don't care if sparks are flying. We need the sparks to fly. We need these stones to rub up against one another so that they can smooth each other out. And through the process of these stones being fitted together and rubbing together and sparks are flying and there's friction, all of a sudden the rough places become smooth. The crooked places become straight and all of a sudden they fit. You know what happens when when folks in the church start rubbing together and sparks start flying. Then folks say, you know what? I'm leaving this church. Why? Because sparks are flying and I can't handle the sparks flying. Listen, and and you think it's just because the other person is offensive. You know, one of the best things the Lord does is bring offensive people to the house. You know why? Because when you get offended, all you see is the rough edges on the person who offended you. What you don't see is that those rough edges are rubbing up against your rough edges. There's no friction if your stone is completely smooth. You hearing me? You need that. You need to rub up against that person. You need, but here's the key. We got to keep this in mind because if there's too much friction and too many sparks start flying, it starts a fire. 
and it can burn down the house. And so sometimes when the sparks are flying and it's too much, we have to say, okay, we're going to keep rubbing up against each other, but not as aggressively. Right. Because we're going to smooth each other out, but we're going to give it time to smooth each other. I'm not going to try to smooth you out overnight. You hearing me? You know, the stones of the house have to make a decision. I'm going to stay here until we're fitted together. I'm going to stay in the yoke with you until we're fitted together. See, but I've been here for three years already and the sparks are still flying. Well, that's just because you and I both have a lot of rough edges. But the Lord is going to smooth us out. We're going to get fitted together. And I don't care how long it takes. I'm committed to you. I'm going to keep rubbing up against you and rubbing up against you. Why? Because I need you to smooth me out and you need me to smooth you out. It only happens as we're fitted together. So we need those stone cutters. Just bring them into the house. I don't care what condition they're in. We'll smooth them out at the house. A lot of people say, well, I can't come to church because I'm going to get my life right first. I'm going to smooth myself out and then I'm going to come to church. That's what you're saying. Because I'm tired of them hypocrites in the church. They're not living right. Those hypocrites in the church ain't living right. When I become a Christian, I'm going to do it right. Do you know how arrogant that is? When I become a Christian, what you're really saying, when I become a Christian, I'm going to be perfect. Not like the rest of those hypocrites who are still being smoothed out. You got some rough edges, too. And if you think you're going to smooth yourself out before coming to the house of the Lord, you got another thing coming. It's only as you're fitted in with other believers in the house of the Lord. And listen, there's stones above you that are rubbing on you and stones on this side of you that are rubbing on you and stones on the other side of you that are rubbing on you and stones behind you that are rubbing on you and stones in front of you. You know, sometimes you feel like you're, st- you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And you are. Why? Because God has to keep rubbing on you till he smooths you out. You don't leave the church because of that. Are you hearing me? But here's the key. The stones in the foundation are unmovable. They're unmovable. They're steadfast. They're unmovable. They're always abounding in the work of the Lord. They're not thinking I'm here until the Lord moves me on. They're not thinking, well, I'll give it six months. And if you don't recognize how much authority I have. And give me a ministry in the, in the church, then I'm going to find a place that does recognize me. Because, see, i got to be used. I can't sit on the vine. i got to be used. And so I go to the next church, and, and he didn't recognize me either. So I'm going to go to the next church because i got to be used. See, I can't just sit on the vine and die. No, you got to be fitted together, not used. God does not use people. <laughs> mm. I've learned that when there's no amen, it was a more powerful comment than I. <laughs> when you say amen, it, that was okay. But when you didn't say amen, it hit you deep. <laughs> hit you so hard you can't even talk. <laughs> now, secondly, he said we need some woodcutters. The woodcutters have to go up into the mountains and cut down timbers. And then bring them back to the house. They have to go up into the mountains so that they can get the tallest trees. The tallest trees grow in the mountains. Now there's, there's a certain theology called the seven mountain mandate. And what it does is it recognizes the seven major places of influence in the world and in society. And it teaches that we believers need to go into those seven mountains and bring the kingdom of God to those mountains. And those mountains are education, media and, and, and uh, media, art, media and art. Uh, government, let me do this, please. (laughs) Everybody's throwing stuff at me. 
There's government, there's education, there's arts and media, there's business and finance, there's family, there's religion, and there's... Okay, now help me. Okay, yeah. So art and entertainment, media, government, family, education, religion, and business and finance. Those are the seven major areas of influence in the world. And the seven mountain mandate teaches that we need to go out into those seven mountains and bring the kingdom of God. But the prophet Haggai said, go up into the mountains and cut down timber and build a house for my glory so that I might be, take, honored in it, take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. When you go out into those seven mountains, you do so for the purpose of cutting down timber and bringing it back to build the house of the Lord. See, a lot of times we believers are thinking I'm going out from the church and I'm going to go into those mountains and I'm going to live there and die there. No, you live in the house of the Lord. You go to the mountain for the purpose of cutting down timbers and bringing it back to the mountain. Listen, if God's sending you to the mountain of business and finance, you're going to cut down the timbers of financial wealth and bring it back to the house of the Lord. If God is sending you to the mountain of education, you're going to cut down timbers of knowledge and bring it back to the house of the Lord. If God's sending you wherever mountain he's sending you to, it's to get timber but the problem is we go there and we don't get timber to build the house of the lord we get timber to build our own houses Uh oh, uh we need the woodcutters that say i'm going to the mountains but i'm cutting down timbers and i'm bringing it back to the house of the lord and i'm going to build the house and the the timbers the wood builds the walls just as the stones go in the foundation the wood goes in the walls The wood builds the walls. The timbers in the house are those individuals that stand and say, I'm going to be the walls of this house. And walls are for protection. They keep out the cold and they keep out the predators. They keep out the cold and they keep out the predators. Now, if the walls keep moving, keep opening up, keep moving out of their place. I'm in the house. I'm here, but now I'm gone. Okay, now I'm back. No, now I'm gone. Okay, now I'm here. No, now I'm gone. It, all of a sudden, there's holes in the wall, and the cold starts coming. He said, why is it so cold in here? Is there a window open? Oh, there was a timber that was right here, and it's missing. And then finally, he said, we need the carpenters. What do the carpenters do? The carpenters know how to take the wood and take the stones and put them together. In the right order. That is, they know how to administrate the actual builders of the building of the house. The stone cutters go out into the mountains. The wood cutters go out into the mountains. They work in the business world and in the world of finance and art and education and all that. But the carpenters work in the house. The carpenters rise up and say, I'm going to take these timbers and these stones that come into the house and I'm going to fit them together. I'm going to work to put them together. The the carpenters say, I'm called to administrate and take stewardship within the house of the Lord. And they begin to work. And when these three come together, stone cutters, wood cutters and carpenters, suddenly the house begins to, to grow and be built. But the house is only built on the commitment of the people. Let me tell you something. The house is only built on the commitment of the people. You know, a young lady told me, she said, uh, she called me a few months ago or Facebooked me and she said, there's this guy and I think he likes me and I just want you to pray for me about this guy. And I said, really? Well, tell me about him. So oh, he's wonderful. He's awesome. And he's so handsome and he's so nice to me. And he takes me out to coffee and, and, and he's, you know, he takes me out to lunch and we study together 
and we talk on the phone, and I think he likes me. I said, well, how long has this been going on? He said, well, about six months. I said, so for six months, you think he likes you. For six months, he's been flirting with you, but not making any commitment to you. For six months, he's been flirting with you, but not making any commitment to you. Say, are you friends or are you together? Well, neither. We're kind of in this in-between stage where there hasn't been any real commitment, but we're developing intimacy. The problem is that intimacy without commitment is adultery. You said it. You said it. And then another three months went by and she wrote me back and I asked him, she said, I asked him, what in the world is going on between us? Are we just going to keep having lunch or is there something going on here? And he said, well, I'm afraid of commitment. And she said, what do I do? I said, you drop him like a hot pancake. You drop him like a hot potato. He's not worth your time. You know, there's so many people that have been flirting with Jesus. Flirting with Jesus. I come to church, but all you're doing is having a little coffee with him. No, no, no. I I listen to the teaching. Yeah, you have a little lunch with him. But I'm afraid of commitment. I'm not ready for commitment. I just want to, I want to just, you know, just date him a little bit. Maybe even kiss him once in a while. Even hold his hand a little bit. But it's, you know, we'll, we'll just be friends with benefits. It's true. It's true. Adultery. And I told her, I said, you know, it's been long enough for him to make a commitment. He's been sitting there long enough to do something. Are you hearing me? It's long enough. It's long. And for for many of the people in the in the house of God, you wonder why you feel so shaky all the time. You wonder why you feel so uncovered all the time and so unprotected all the time. It's because you won't get firmly planted in the house of the Lord. Psalm 92, 13 says those who are firmly planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of their God. You got to come into the house and commit to it. The stones don't date the house. They don't flirt the house. You know, there's been people, people will flirt with the church for three, four, and five years. You haven't become a stone in the house, and that's why you still feel shaky. But the stones, they say, I'm all in. I'm all in. I am up in this thing. I'm not moving. I'm going to be steadfast, unmovable. I'm always going to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that my labor is not in vain. And you know why people flirt with the house and don't join it? Because they still think they're in the season of warfare. Well, I got stuff I got to battle through before I can commit myself to the house. I've got to overcome this. And I was hurt by my last church and I was abused by my last pastor and I was manipulated and I'm afraid of being abused and manipulated and controlled. And I'm worried about this and I'm worried about and I got to just battle through this stuff. I know I've been visiting this church on and off for six years, but I I just got to battle through this stuff before I can commit myself and join. And I'm saying to you, just get fitted together with the people of God and become a stone or become a, a timber or something. But you've got to get into the house. You've got to get firmly planted in the house of the Lord. Are you hearing me this morning? I'm telling you, your warfare has ended. Your warfare has ended. God is moving you out of the administration of David and into the administration of Solomon. God's not looking for warriors. There's no more battles. The battles have been won. God's looking for builders.
You say, God, I've got a sword. And he says, great, put it in your sheath and pick up the hammer. Now I need some builders. Lord, I'll stand and protect the house. You protect it as a wall, not a guard. I'm calling you to be a timber in the wall, not a guard on the wall. Because you know what? Guards, they take shifts. (laughs) You hearing me? Say, well, I've been here for three years. My shift at this house is over. Now I'm going to shift on to the next house. Listen, God's not looking for you to take shifts. He's looking for permanent pieces in the wall. He's looking for permanent foundation stones. And I know that's scary. You say, oh, commit, commit. That's going to restrict me. No, it's not. It's going to free you. You want me to commit to the house? That's going to tie me down. What if the Lord moves? You know what? If the Lord moves, the house will move with it. And if the Lord sends you, the house will send you. Commitment will not restrict you. It will free you. It will release you. Are you hearing me? It's time to start building. And it's time to stop battling. Your warfare is ended. Your warfare has ended. Your warfare has ended. And so now I speak comfort to you right now. I speak comfort. Isaiah 40, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem. David said, God told me, son, that you're going to be a man of peace. That's why I named you man of peace. Solomon, I named you Solomon. You are a man of peace of peace. I'm naming you that because I want you to know that your administration is not my administration. I'm saying to you today by the word of the Lord that our fathers in the last generation, they had such a strong emphasis on spiritual warfare and that strong emphasis on spiritual warfare was because it was the administration of David. They had to fight. But I'm saying to you that the fight is won now and God isn't calling us to enter into warfare. God's calling us to build the house. He's called us to enter into rest. And I'm saying God has given you rest on every side. I know you still feel like you're fighting financial battles and fighting relational battles and fighting marital battles and fighting familial battles and fighting vocational battles and fighting educational battles. And you still feel like that the enemies are surrounding you on every side. But I'm saying, no, 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 no. God's giving you rest on every side. It looks like a battle, but that's because the enemy's trying to draw you into it. Now I'm saying to you that the Lord has won it. The Lord has given you victory. You are more than a conqueror. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You're not going to battle anymore. Now you're entering into his Sabbath rest. You're entering into his Sabbath rest. You're entering into the the dispensation of peace. And there's going to be so much peace. That your mind is going to shift from winning victories for yourself to picking up the hammer and building the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that your spirit would begin to fall heavy on hearts and minds. Lord, there's a solidifying work of the spirit of God that's happening in this house today. So many of your sons and daughters, they feel like vagabonds. They're journeying here and there, moving to and fro being pushed this way and that way by every wave and every wind. But Lord, today, you're bringing stability. You're bringing security. You're bringing safety. You're bringing covering. Lord, I know today's service is a little different than most services, but I I know that this word is from you. I know this is what you're speaking by the word of the Lord. And I know this word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish that which you sent it to accomplish. Father, I call out the builders in the house right now in Jesus' name. I shift the minds of the warriors. I shift the minds. I know you've been trained for war. I know you've been, and I know you've been so conscious of everything that's come against you. 
So much so that you've begun to expect, I'm going to be attacked and I'm going to be opposed and I'm going to be restrained and I'm going to be restricted and I've got to fight my way out. I've got to fight my way out. But I'm shifting your mind this morning. I'm shifting your heart this morning. And I say unto you today that you're moving out of the dispensation. You're moving out of the administration of David and into the administration of Solomon. Out of the administration of warfare and into the administration of peace and out of the administration of battling and into the administration of building. And I say that you're going to build the house of the Lord and you're going to be foundation stones in the house of the Lord and you're going to be timbers that are going to make walls in the house of the Lord. And this morning, I'm challenging you to commit yourself to the house. I'm challenging you to make a decision that you're going to commit yourself to the house that God is building in this city. That God had a dream for the city of Emeryville and he had a dream for this house in it. And he's looking for builders. He's standing as a, car- as a carpenter in this city. I'm telling you that the great carpenter has come to build a house in the city of Emeryville. And he's looking for sons, sons and daughters who would stand next to him and put on the belt and say, I'm only eight years old, but I'm going to stand with my daddy and I'm going to help build. I'm going to be a co-builder with Jesus. And I'm going to be here till the work is done. You know, the prophet Zechariah spoke in Zechariah chapter 4. He said, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple and the hands of Zerubbabel will complete it. Zerubbabel had begun the rebuilding of the house of the Lord and the people got discouraged in the midst of the building because they said, so much labor has gone but we're not even near completing the work. And the prophet of God said, no, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid its foundation, the hands of Zerubbabel will complete it. And he said, and men will rejoice to see the capstone in the hands of Zerubbabel. Then will Zerubbabel bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. They said the end is coming and Zerubbabel is going to go get that capstone, that last stone that was already prepared. And he's going to carry it out and the people are going to see that the vision has come to pass. The people are going to see that the work is coming to completion. And they're going to begin to rejoice and they're going to shout, God bless it, God bless it. The capstone is coming out and the house is coming to completion. So you're going to join in and you're going to build. And the house is going to come to completion. Listen, I'm going to do something this morning that in my eight years of pastoring in this church, I've never done before. I've never challenged anybody to commit to the house long term. This morning, I'm looking for stones and timbers. And I'm looking for stone cutters and wood cutters. And I'm looking for carpenters. The Spirit of the Lord is looking for co-builders in this house. What I'm asking you for this morning is a 10-year commitment to this house. A 10-year commitment to say, I'm going to be a stone. I'm not going to be a transient. And I'm not going to sit on the fence. I'm going to be in the wall. Not going to sit on the fence. I'm going to be in the wall. I'm going to be in. I'm going to commit myself to the work of the Lord. I'm going to join in building the house of the Lord. I'm going to be a stone in the foundation. I'm going to be a timber in the wall. You're going to make, I'm asking for 10-year commitments this morning. You say, well, what if the Lord sends me someplace else? You know, if the Lord sends you, we'll send you. You can still be a foundation stone or a timber and be sent by the house. The problem is most folks don't get sent by the house. They just leave. I know the fear is I'm going to be restricted. No, commitment doesn't restrict you. It frees you. It releases you. It releases you. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to solidify you this morning. Some things that feel shaky in your heart and mind, they're going to come 
to become solid this morning. You're going to be solid. It's going to secure you. And we're going to build the house of the Lord. It must be exceedingly magnificent. It must be famous. This is the house of the Lord, not the house of Benjamin. I'm not even asking you to commit to an organization or an institution. I'm talking about committing to the vision of the Lord in this city. Committing to the vision of the Lord in this house. Committing to God's dream. That's what I'm asking for. It must be exceedingly magnificent. It must be famous and it must be glorious among the nations. The house of the Lord. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I know this seems like a strange altar call. But this is what the Lord is saying. I'm looking for builders. You say, I'm going to be a stone. I'm going to be a timber. I'm going to be a woodcutter. I'm going to be a stone cutter. I'm going to be a carpenter. And I'm going to commit myself to it for the next 10 years. Stand right where you are. And there's no condemnation. There's no obligation. I'm not looking around and judging anybody who's not standing. Nothing like that. Stand if you want. Don't. It's okay. I'm with you. But I'm saying there's some folks here today that this is going to solidify you. This is going to stabilize you. This is for you. This is what you need to know that you're a part of the house of the Lord. Father, I speak your blessing over these that are standing right now. And I just speak blessing. I speak encouragement. I speak strength right now. Lord, I thank you that this morning, shakiness and doubt is being removed from the minds and hearts. Lord, there are some that are standing right now that were on the fence before they came in here today. They had been shaken because some sparks had been flying. But God, I declare today that they're going to let the sparks fly from now on. It doesn't matter. They know that they're being fitted together. They're being fitted together. They're being smoothed out. God, I speak blessing. I speak encouragement and I speak joy for the building. Joy. There will be a glorious house for your name in the city of Emeryville. Hallelujah. There will be a glorious house for your name in the city of Emeryville. The house will be glorious. It will be exceedingly magnificent. It will be famous and it will be glorious among the nations. We thank you for it. I speak peace. And even for those who aren't standing, God, Some of them are members of other churches just visiting today. I speak blessing over their houses today. Some of them are still in journey on on pilgrimage and, and, and seeking to be situated in a place. I speak blessing over the journey. But Father, all of your sons and daughters today, I speak blessing and encouragement. I speak strength and peace. And I declare and I determine and I I declare today that the house will be built. It will be glorious. And your sons and daughters are going to be co-builders with you. I bless you today in Jesus' mighty name.